Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. All right, Uh, because some things alone by themselves to our humanity can seem pretty offensive. But whenever you start understanding all the hues of the colors from Genesis to Revelation and the purpose and the meaning and how, how that standalone lesson incorporates into this grand scheme of redemption, then that changes a lot of the aspect, in my opinion. Amen. So we're going to read from 1 Timothy chapter number 2. I'm going to start with verse number 8 and go down to verse number 10. Again, uh, the Apostle Paul says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Now we're going to hear from the Apostle Peter, first Peter chapter number first Peter chapter number three, and starting with verse number three, the Bible states these words, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. So we're going to talk about again Christian living. Amen. And we're just going to go as far as we can go and quit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, today. Lord, I appreciate your spirit. I appreciate the songs today, God, that have, Lord, just wrapped their arms around us, Lord, through the lyrics, Lord Jesus, and the word, Lord of God, that could be found even in the lyrics. God, we're grateful today for that. I pray, oh, Lord, touch every heart and every mind, Lord Jesus, in this season. God, I pray, Lord, say something, Lord, that can be understood. God, more importantly, God, that can be pondered, Lord Jesus. God, for our lives and our living, God, heretofore, in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray, amen, amen. God bless you this morning in Jesus' name, and you may be seated in Jesus' name, amen. We started off on a uh, another portion of our journey in Christian living. We've talked about attitudes, and we have talked about actions, and so last week we started talking about, to a certain extent, peril, apparel, not peril, but apparel, and uh, we begin to describe and define some of the terms such as apparel and modesty uh, in the scripture. And so we spoke just a little bit along those lines this morning, uh, because both found in the two scripture settings that I shared with you today in Timothy and in Peter, uh, they both address a couple of things. And uh, one being apparel and another being adornment, which is there is there is some 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 difference between those two things. Whenever we talk about adornment, 
uh, we might more specifically talk about uh, ornamentation, if you were to call it that. And uh, right from the start today, I would like to say that whenever we talk about uh, ornamentation, and whenever I'm talking about that, I'm talking about jewelry and other matters uh, that a person would put on their body. Uh, the, the, the Bible has different stories from Genesis to Revelations. Uh, there are stories, there are parables. Some of these things are allegories. Some of them are illustrations. And I say this to caution us in reading the word of the Lord. Because there are some stories that you may read in the Old Testament that you might think, well, Brother McGee, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk in that scripture about jewelry and, and bracelets or this was given and that was given. And many times Old Testament scripture will use uh, language in a story or in an illustration that, that it seems to be favorable towards these things that we would teach for you not to put on, all right? But it's doing that because it's in that moment being descriptive for the culture in which it was written, being descriptive to them so they could understand because beauty in different cultures comes with different understandings. What beauty is in one culture is not what beauty is in another culture, so to speak. But in the times in which it was speaking, it's being descriptive in such a way they could understand the illustration that was being portrayed something that the people of that society could identify with because they practiced the same all right and so we got to watch in scripture when there's stories parables allegories and illustrations they think man well they're talking about that almost like in a favorable manner well who are they talking to are they talking to a certain pagan society and trying to make something relatable to them because that's something they they practice so we must watch in scripture when things are descriptive uh, compared to when things are prescriptive. All right? When they are descriptive and when they are prescriptive. And so uh, the scripture teaches us here in the New Testament, it gives a couple of words that uh, we may not be totally, uh, totally familiar with. It talks about how a Christian's adornment, uh, their ornamentation, so to speak, should be uh, with shamefacedness and sobriety, with shamefacedness and sobriety. The word shamefacedness, if we could give a definition to that today as translated from the Greek language from which it was written, uh, shamefacedness means steadfast in modesty, a sense of shame and reverence or regard for others. The literal interpretation of this Greek word, I think, speaks volumes. It means shocked face or blanched face. Isn't that interesting? It actually comes from a root word that has the significance of turning the eyes, the mind, or the attention to anything. And as the apostles are uh, referring to shamefacedness here in Scripture, it's applying then to the adornment. Uh, not of just apparel, but the adornment of other things that we put on, that one or a woman or people should not then apply anything to themselves for the intent or the purpose of just turning eyes, minds, and attention. All right, shamefacedness. The other word that he speaks of concerning our Christian adornment is that a Christian should practice sobriety, all right? And we're not talking about, we're not talking about, uh, uh, you know, not drinking, you know, right here in the scripture. We're not talking about being sober. But sobriety in the Greek means soundness of mind, sound judgment, habitual inner self-government 
with constant rain on all passions and desires. Wow, that's a mouthful. Curbing one's desires, impulses, and temperance. All right? So again, this concept then uh, of what we would adorn ourselves with, not to turn the attention, all right, not trying to satisfy my desire, because the desire of some is that they want noticed. They're willing to go to whatever extent that may be in order to get the attention. But it's not about my impulses or my desire. It's curbing that. It's being temperate in that matter and practicing sobriety. All right. And so there, there starts to happen a little theme here in the New Testament scripture concerning modesty, uh, the shamefacedness, the sobriety. But it goes on, if you'll notice uh, in, in, in verse number or first Timothy chapter number two, the chapter there speaking about going on and saying not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly, costly array. In other words, there should be a little bit of frugality uh, concerning that which we put on ourselves, costly array. Can someone say amen? So it has a, a bit to say, the Bible has a bit to say about ornamental, and I, I, I underscore and emphasize ornamental jewelry. Okay, everybody doing okay? Amen. I'm just going to wade into the pool. If I start to drown, someone grab my hand. <clears throat> Before Jacob, Jacob, you remember the story, Jacob, he left home. One of the last places that he visited before leaving home was Bethel, the house of God. At least that is what he came to know it as. It was before Luz, but he, he speaks of it as Bethel. He had that great vision there, and he left from home. And while he's away from home, he finds marriage and has children, and uh, there's great increase in his life. Well, Jacob is on his return back to Bethel. Because that's where the Lord told him to go. And on his return back to Bethel, uh, he's going to build an altar unto the Lord. And all of the people, notice now, when he left, he was just Jacob. When he comes back home now, he has wives, children, men servants and maidservants. What are you saying, Brother McGee? I'm saying Jacob was responsible for more than himself. Jacob was responsible for more than himself. And so his return home, he's going back to Bethel, a place that none of them has ever been. But he's been there. All right? And before when he was there, he was just responsible for Jacob. But now that he's going back, he's responsible for himself, his wives, his children, all of those that are under his care. And he tells them, we're going to Bethel. I know you've never been there, but I have been there. And you're my family. And I'm responsible unto God for you. And he says, so this is what we're going to do. In Genesis 35 and verse 2, then Jacob said unto, notice, his household. And to all that were with him. Because these are the ones that he is responsible for. He says, put away the strange gods that are among you. And he says, and be clean and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make there an altar unto God. And a little further down he says, And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand. Note now. And all their earrings, he says, which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. I brought it to your attention before. 
in, in, in many of the pagan societies of the day of the children of Israel, their earrings in many ways held the images of their gods. Notice he required the strange gods and they're giving him the earring. Amen. Not only that, but gold over time, and we'll get into this in a little bit, gold, earrings, jewelry, throughout scripture over time, there had become a dynamic shift in what its purpose was. Yes. Remember whenever the children of Israel was about ready to lead Egypt and the Lord purposely has them go to the Egyptians and ask for some of these things that they need for leaving. The Bible says that Israel spoiled Egypt. And they got silver and they got gold. They got some of these earrings and all these things. We find later in the scripture what the Lord's, everybody say the Lord's. The Lord's purpose for these things is that when he would want to build a tabernacle in the wilderness, he could request gold and silver of these people that they had gotten from their bondage in Egypt and then melt all of that down and use it for the glory of the Lord. That was the Lord's purpose. All right? Because in old time, in biblical times, jewelry in many ways was a currency. All right? It wasn't like they had dollar bills and all this stuff. Jewelry was a currency. It was a way in which payment was made. That was its purpose. Not so much for the purpose of adorning, but for the purpose of transaction. But see, through time, something changed. Because it doesn't take long, and we're going to talk about this, till they're at the mount of God. Moses is up there getting the tabernacle, a pattern to the tabernacle in the wilderness and the Ten Commandments. And what's going down at the base of the mountain? These things that they had got from Egypt, they're melting down. They are. It's not for the purpose of making uh, the gold that's going to cover the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. It's not for the purpose of making a lampstand or any of those things. They're melting it down and they make a golden calf and they dance around it and they worship around it. Amen. And there's all kinds of things that start to happen. In other words, what that jewelry in the Old Testament was given for, which was for money, for transaction to help them through their wilderness journey, they had altered its function. Mm -hmm. Now it became something that they were worshiping someone say amen and so here here's jacob he says we're we're returning back home all these things all these images these earrings all these things he said we're going to hide them under the oak which was by shechem this is just a side note there is no better place uh than to take all of those things of strange gods and other matters even of ornamentation that is not in 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 uh, uh congruence with scripture and just hide them under another tree called calvary Amen. And so, speaking of the children of Israel, we go to Mount Sinai, which was also known as Mount Horeb. You can look at it in Exodus 33, verses 5 through 6. The Israelites here, again, it's important to note that this is after they've had their golden calf scenario. Melting down their stuff and out came this calf, as Aaron said, and worshiping. It's here really at the Mount of God of Mount Horeb that the children of Israel truly became the covenant people. They really struck a covenant with the Lord God. And notice what the Lord asked of them. And this is important, I think, because whenever you look at the dynamic of Old Testament Scripture 
And I believe then this is reflected, not a believe, it is. This is reflected also in New Testament scripture. Notice that the Lord didn't give the law of the Ten Commandments or the other laws. God didn't give the children of Israel the law and then deliver them from Egypt. He delivered them from Egypt and then he gave them the law. Mm -hmm. That was the order. I'm going to deliver you and then I'm going to give you the law, the means by which we ought to live our lives. And something that he would oftentimes preface his laws with were this. Remember, I am the Lord thy God, which delivered thee out of bondage. Man, it, what, what did that do? That was just massaging the hearts of the people. Because if this feels offensive, or if this feels like a high water mark to reach, remember for a moment, you were in bondage. You had hard taskmasters over your shoulders. Your backs were bleeding. You were dancing around the flesh pots. You had all this going on. He said, but I am the Lord thy God, which delivered you from all of. I'm, I am the Lord thy God. And so the Bible says in Exodus 33, verse 5, for the Lord said unto Moses, because there's really a, a covenant, a covenant people that is being birthed right here at the Mount of God, Mount Horeb of Sinai. For the Lord said unto Moses, say unto the children of Israel, Ye are a stiff-necked people. He's already met some things, you know, just, just a few days' journey into the wilderness. The Lord understands. This, gonna just, this isn't a turnkey thing. This is a process. He says, ye are a stiff-necked people. He says, I will come into the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. He says, therefore, now put off thy ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do unto thee. And the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount of Horeb. Wait a minute. So we have ornaments that original intent was for transaction now have become for adorning. He says, you've taken something for one purpose and you've turned it into something else. You're using this for adorning. And as we will see through scripture, what comes with that is a sense of vanity. What comes with that is a sense of pride. For some, it's a sense of sensuality. And he says, you have done this. He says, so I'm saying, take off the ornaments. And he says, take them off and strip them right here at Mount Horeb. A few different renderings of translations. Uh, the Bible in basic English uh, gives us that last phrase there that they did not put them on again. Moffat's translation of the scripture says that they stripped themselves of their ornaments at Mount Horeb and ever after, meaning that when they laid them down, they didn't pick them back up to put on. Amen. They, because now they had become, this was a covenant relationship that they were entering with the Lord. All right? Amen. And they had changed the function and the intent. So, Brother McGee, what's the big deal with that? Cast your eyes over your shoulders. And look at thousands of years of history and see how things in some instances had pure functions in their beginning. But men have changed them to the place now that they should be off bounds. Be because we have changed their purpose. And now what was the standard back then is a whole different standard today for its use. 
because of the way that we have manipulated its function and purpose. Later on, the Bible speaks in Isaiah, God even rebuked and punished. Note now, this, he was speaking to Israel. He was speaking to Israel in a backslidden state, all right? Israel has backslid. Israel has not kept their allegiance to the Lord. And so he's rebuking and punishing a backslidden nation of Israel because of their sin and for their vain and pride ornamentation that they had. Isaiah chapter number 3 and verse number 16. All right, the Bible says, Moreover, the Lord saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and menacing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet. Now, I want to stop here for a moment because the way in which Israel is acting, she's acting in such a way where she can seduce others. All right? Many times you'd see Israel spoken of as a whore and a whoremonger and an adulterer and all this stuff. It's because oftentimes she is seen in the female gender in her relationship with the Lord. And whenever she betrays her relationship with the Lord, she is acting as one that is unfaithful to him. And so the Lord is describing her in a backslidden state with all of these things that would be seducing, if you will, to try to mislead her, her leaders and even cause Judah to rebel, Right? catch them by their desires. And here's just a side point. This is another reason why that we try to steer clear from this because from the very beginning, God made man and he made woman, right? And he made their, I'm not saying pecking order or hierarchy, but he did make a way in which the, that the man was the head of the woman and God was the head of the man. There is a divine order. We submit yes to one another, but the thing in the very beginning, if you remember, as, as Eve partook of the tree, right? And then she gave to her husband. And in that moment, there is almost, if you will, a swaying of the man in certain essences by the request of the woman, take also and eat. And so we keep these things in place, not just for the protection of keeping lustful desires and things of that nature down or not to be vain or, or haughty or anything of that mode, but also to keep the God-ordained order of mankind, of man and woman and Christ all in its proper position in place because ornamentation and the way that we dress can be used to sway the male figure, even it being our... Well, God. <laughs> even it being in our modern-day society, What? To get what somebody wants. To usurp authority. Well, I love you, Jesus. So I got to go on. Therefore, the Lord will smite. Speaking back to Israel. Therefore, the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughter of Zion. And the Lord will discover her secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the bravery of her tinkling ornaments about their feet. And their calls and their round tears like the moon, the chains and the bracelets and the mufflers and the bonnets and the ornaments of the legs and the headbands and the tablets and the earrings, the rings, the nose jewels, the changeable suits of apparel and the mantles and the wimples and the crisping pins and the glasses and the fine linen and the hoods and the veils. What's he doing? He's stripping her down. Because anybody 
as we've seen thus far, whenever nakedness was usually portrayed in Scripture, it was shameful. And he wants her in this mode to be ashamed of the way that she has carried herself as a nation. And so he's divesting her of all of this ornamentation that in a figurative sense that she has put on. The Encyclopedia Britannica, volume 12, states that the wearing of stone and metal ornaments had its origin, and this is not me, this is just history, in idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and vanity. It goes on to say that the early church fathers wrote extensively against the use of jewelry and ornamentation. Now, that's just outside of Bible reference, all right? The Tyndale New Testament commentary states, says Paul was shrewd enough to know that a woman's dress is a mirror of her mind. Outward ostentation, which is excessive display, is not in keeping with a prayerful and devout attitude. Paul leaves no doubt as to what he means by adding a list of prohibitions relating to outward adornment. He said such tendencies to this excessive display of adornment must be resisted by Christian women. And the same applies to the use of jewelry and costly clothing. In all these injunctions, the dominating idea is the avoidance of anything designed merely to promote excessive display with all its accompanying dangers. Tyndale was not apostolic, but he had something good to say about that. Amen. In Ezekiel 16, you'll even read of that the Lord talks about Israel again as though it was a, a, a infant that was abandoned. He said, I saw thee polluted in thy own blood. We use it in Ezekiel 16, 6. When I saw thee in thy own blood, I said, live. No one had cut your navel cord. No one had salted thee. No one had swaddled thee. He's talking to this as though that's Israel. When he found her, Israel was like an abandoned child. But he goes on. He goes on and the Bible talks about then him adorning her with jewelry. And then he talks about her playing the role of a harlot with the ornaments to attract lovers. All right. And make idols. And people sometimes use Ezekiel 16 to see, look at all those things that the Lord gave her, all this ornamentation. But what the Lord is doing is Isaiah is telling the story of the deliverance from Exodus and what they got from Egypt which was for an alternative purpose, but what they turned it into for the purpose, if you will, of, of, of bowing down to and being a harlot with. They put him on. He's telling the story in a figurative sense. He meant to relay, this is how I found you as a kid with a, a, an umbilical cord that wasn't cut and had been, that wasn't a literal, that wasn't a literal sense right there. He was speaking in figurative language of whenever I found you, there was nobody that wanted you. But I gave you these things through what? Your, your deliverance from Egypt. But you corrupted them and made them ornaments of har- harlotry and idols. And so, again, you got to look at the scriptures to see whether it's figurative language, whenever it's speaking something that's just descriptive and not prescriptive. The Wycliffe Bible commentary says concerning 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6, Speaking of that, it says the woman is not to seek attention by the artificialities of Kofor jewelry, also excessive display dress, but to be distinguished by that meek and quiet spirit. That's what the scripture says. 
So rare in the world and so prized by God. The wives of the patriarchs as seen as examples of this deportment. Apparently, God and showy adornment is viewed as contrary to the spirit of self-effacement and modesty toward husbands. The same implication appears in 1 Timothy 2. Modesty of women's dress is associated with becoming or proper modesty of deportment. Apparently, Christian faith implies a different standard of dress and adornment from the world. Amen. Someone say amen. And so when we talk about that and say, well, brother, me, yes, there is things in our lives that are functional. There are things uh, that we place on our bodies that are functional. You some may wear a watch on their arm and its function is to tell you time. Many people don't even have that today. They can just pull out their phone and look down at it. I haven't. I don't think I've wore a watch since I started evangelizing just because it was a thing for some churches and congregations not even to wear a watch, and we respected that request. And so also whenever we evangelize, I didn't wear a wedding ring, although this is a function. I believe it indicates to the world that you're bound without anything else. Uh, you're bound to another. You have allegiances to another without there having to be words or them seeing you with that person. There's times that you travel alone, don't you? Huh? This speaks then that I, I, I have given myself to another so it serves a function. It indicates that I'm married. Again, when I evangelized, and never wore a wanded ring because there were people that churches and such that deemed that that was not proper. And so we abided by that whenever we were in their congregation. And it's because I, I, I did not want to be a stumbling block uh, to their people. If you want to go on, there are some places that didn't want colored shirts, and I'd abide by that. Other places didn't want short sleeves, and I'd wear long sleeves the whole time I was there. You know what I'm doing in that moment? I'm becoming a saint in that congregation, being respectful of the man of God that he set in that place and how he feels conviction for the word for his people. I guess what I'm saying is this. Even in those areas... That may not be biblical, black or white, but then the man of God kind of gives forth. This is where the line is for this assembly. I was abiding by that. I was making myself his saint for a week. Oh, God. My wife, my wife, we was in a two-week revival. And in that area, it was... And that pastor deemed for his congregation that the wearing of like cheetah print or something like that was not appropriate because in that area, that was highly typical and indicative of prostitution. We come to know any type of animal print. She wore the same black skirt. Ankle length for about two weeks, same one every night. Because, well, we only had so many clothes that we had with us. She so happened to have the safari with her. Now, again. Why in the world? Because I was being respectful of the authority in the church. And the conviction, he knew his area better than I knew it. And if that was a problem there, then maybe they didn't need to be wearing animal print. I guess what I'm saying is, I've sat where you sat. Amen. Even in scripture, 
Their signet rings and scriptures that kings and other people of royalty had, their function, they transacted business with those signet rings that they had. Some of them, it wasn't rings, but uh, there were crowns or bands or even chains that they had. Again, it was all for the conveyance of legal authority. It served a function in those times. Now, let's not get far-fetched and just put all this stuff on. Well, this here is, you know, it keeps, you know, me from getting cold in the winter. And that over there, that, you know, whatever. What I'm saying is people can come up with all types of contrivances to try to make function legitimate. There's two queens and two churches that are compared in contrast in Scripture. Two queens that are contrasted in Scripture is Queen Jezebel and Queen Esther. Queen Jezebel... Jezebel wasn't just an individual. Jezebel was a spirit. Because even after she is slaughtered and the dogs and the horses trampled her and the dogs have come and licked up her blood, we still see Jezebel in the book of Revelation. She's not just a person. She is a spirit. And the Bible speaks of her in, in ways, and you can read of it in 2 Kings 9 and 30, but she is one that, number one, in the life of Jezebel, she's married to Ahab. We see that she had sway over her own husband. He was king, but she was the ruler. And yet the Bible describes her that even whenever Jehu had become king and was riding out to take care of this Jezebel business, right? But the Bible says when she knew he was coming, you know what she did? The Bible says she teared up her head, she painted her face, and she looked out the window. What was Jezebel trying to do? Be alluring to a Jehu that was about ready to undercut her omission. She had paid in her face. She had, she had just adorned and teared up her head. That's Jezebel. But when we read of Esther, we read of Esther that's taken in, in, in the harem as it would be of, of, of even a pagan king. But she has, she's a Jew uh, in person that as they had all these maids that's going to try to go to fulfill the road that Vashti once had. But a king of Hazar said, Vashti no more because she didn't respect me. She didn't come whenever I beckoned for her. Right. I'm going to replace her. And so he had several people that was kind of like the tryouts, you know, and had all these ladies and all these maids and numbered among them was Esther. And there was a chamberlain, the king's chamberlain that was giving these ladies what they needed to do. They went through 12 months. The Bible says of purification, oil of myrrh and all these different things for purification. But there would always come then a day that each one of these maids would go to the king, spend a night there and then return home. Whenever they went to the king, they had the opportunity to request whatever they wanted in addition to their purification. In addition to their purification in order to go before the king. There might have been this one taking this, this one taking that, thinking that this will be even more suitable to the king. But the Bible says of Esther, you look at it in Esther chapter number two, and the Bible says, speaking of Esther, when she went uh, to be a part of this group of women, the Bible says that she was fair and beautiful. Those are the, the, that's the verbiage that the King James uses. She was fair and beautiful. And so she's went through this 12 months of purification. Her day has come to go appear before the king. And the Bible says that she went to the king's chamberlain as others are requesting things on their night. The Bible says she required nothing in addition to what had been appointed. Woo. 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 Nothing in addition to what had been appointed. Her 12 months of purification was sufficient. 
to go into the presence of royalty. And the Bible says Esther found favor in the eyes of the king and made her his queen. She's fair and beautiful and required nothing additional. Two queens, but there's also two churches in the word of the Lord. Revelation chapter number 17 and verse number three, if I may can read to you. And again, folks, please. And if you hear this later in podcast, I know it's not online today just because we're missing some people. All right. Uh, but later in podcast, whoever's listening to this online, do not listen to this isolated lesson without listening to all of the Christian living lessons. Because if you go take this one, listen to it, you will walk away offended. But I think if you take this in the corpus of the whole Christian living, it's going to give a little bit of enlightenment to what we're saying right here. Going back to the holiness, the separation, because he's in all of this stuff. Him, him making this away and us keeping it away. All right? Amen. And so in Revelation chapter 17 and verse number 3, so he carried me away, John says, in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. That's pretty strong. John saying, whenever I saw her, I paused and admired her. And she has the precious stones, the pearls, all these things. In other words, it even caused John, who was in a vision in the moment, to pause and admire. It turned his head. And the Lord and the angel said unto me, wherefore didst thou marvel? The Lord questioned him concerning his admiration. He said, wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and the ten hordes. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall send out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition that they may dwell on the earth and shall wander whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And so it's following this whole idea and it's portraying then this mystery of Babylon, even through the Antichrist and some of these things of the last days, but portraying it in such a way with this extra ornamentation that even caught the eye of John. But there is another church, not the, that's the harlot church right here, but there is another church that the Bible speaks of in Revelation chapter 19 and verse number seven. And this is what the word of God says about this church. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife, that's the church, hath made herself ready and to her was granted. Look at the simplicity of this. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. It's quite two different figurative pictures here. One that has all this costly array and gold and pearls, harlot church, and another just fine linen, which is the righteousness of. Yet that's the lamb's wife. Amen. That's the lamb's wife. 
Amen. And so we, we must be careful. We must be careful. Let's, let's just take another little line here just real quickly concerning Jezebel that she teared her head, she painted her face. We'll look at this more just perhaps a little bit later. Remember in the Old Testament, we have tabernacle, we have temple, we have the tabernacle of Zerubbabel, we have Herod's temple, we have all these buildings in which God uh, came down and he expressed his glory in. That sometimes the Bible says when they first had these dedications for these buildings that his spirit came down and the cloud filled the house. We see this both in the tabernacle and the temple that the priest could not even stand to minister because of the presence of the Lord. You look at Old Testament tabernacle, Old Testament, the very first. The exterior of the tabernacle was nothing to draw any attention to itself. No. It was fabric strewn between wooden members. It's only as you got into the inside at the altar and the laver and the lampstand and the shoe bread and the candlestick and most significantly the Ark of the Covenant that there's the brass and the gold and the pure gold. The outside didn't draw attention, but the inside was filled with all precious things. That's Old Testament tabernacle. But the New Testament writer says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Type and shadow. Spoken of back then, fulfilled here. Nothing was painted, put on the exterior of the tabernacle. But we as Holy Ghost filled people now have become that tabernacle. It doesn't need any extra ornamentation on the outside. But all precious things are found on the inside. Amen. On the inside. And so again. We must be careful that through jewelry, artificial ornamentation, that there's not this expression of vanity and pride and such like that. The apostles of the New Testament church was asking us, amen, telling us to abstain from it. The Full Life Study Bible, I have one. Uh, This is the NIV version, but the Full Life Study Bible says this. Again, it's not apostolic. It is God's will that Christian women dress modestly and discreetly, The word decency implies a certain shame in exposing the body. It involves a refusal to dress in such a way as to draw attention to the body and to pass the boundaries of proper reserve. The source of modesty is in a person's heart or inner character. In other words, modesty is the outward manifestation of an inward purity. Dressing immodestly, which may excite impure desires in others, is as wrong as the immoral desire it provokes. No activity or condition justifies the wearing of immodest attire that would expose the body in such a way as to stimulate lust in someone else. It is a sad commentary on the church when the biblical standard for modest dress is ignored and the world's customs are passively adopted. In a day of sexual permissiveness, the church should act and dress differently from a corrupt society that throws aside and ridicules the spirit's desire for modesty, purity, godly restraint. Amen. And so, our adornment then should be with moderation, should be uh, with simplicity. Note that the scripture said, some, this is where yahoos get in there. Brother McGee, it says broided hair. Does that mean their girls can't braid their hair? It says broided. No. Braid your hair all you want to. 
But you got to understand the context in which this was written. In the Greco-Roman world, broiding of hair or the braiding of hair just wasn't hair. The three links or fish, whatever, all these other things they got that they call broided hair. Whenever they braided their hair, their fashions also included the intertwining of pearls and gold in their braids and even the dyeing of their hair. Paul and Peter are speaking in the context of their culture and generation. He said, not with broidered hair. He said, don't be putting those pearls in that gold and dye. In that. He didn't say don't braid. He said, just don't braid it like they. Don't braid it like they braid it. All right? So they're, they're not condemning braiding or the arrangement of hair. Please do not walk out of your house with disheveled hair. He's not saying that at all. Some people go to the opposite end of the spectrum and do a whole lot of interpreting where there's nothing to interpret. All right? But he's just saying, you don't, you, you, you got to, he's denouncing being elaborate. He's denouncing being gaudy and showy and flashy and outrageous. Amen. Amen. Because that were things that were common among the Greeks and the Romans of that day. Again, again, speaking, you know, a wedding. Remember the prodigal son? Whenever he came home, I just mentioned earlier that his father put a ring on his finger, which was indicative then, you know, of, of the establishment of his son being back home and, you know, being welcomed back into the family, so on and so forth. Again, there were purposes that were served. Let me go on just a little quicker. How are we doing? Oh, good gravy. Let's stand. Well, I'm about ready to get into the distinction of the sexes. And listen, two minutes is not going to suffice. Because there's a, we're having trouble with our identity. All right. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.